0: Welcome to the Critical Features Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberty features, where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racist Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. In today's episode, we chat with Fabra Jabulani, the lead racial equity capacity catalyst for Forward Through Ferguson, and her community partner, Michelle Barbot, the community governance board member for the Racial Healing and Justice Fund. Our conversation is moderated by Dr. Kira Banks, professor of psychology and co-founder of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity.
1: So the name of our podcast is Critical Futures. So I want to start there and ask you when you hear that phrase critical futures, right? What is what does that mean to you and your work on anti-racist policy or research on structural racism in healthcare? Like what is critical for our future?
2: When I hear critical futures, um I hear urgency that there's work to be done and there's work to be done right now. Um that if we are going to have um, an effective society where people have opportunities to thrive, then we need to make some tough decisions about how we're existing and how we're operating right now and why. And so, yeah, I when I hear critical futures, I think, okay, we got work to do. So that's just like my immediate like gut response to
3: just hearing the title. Michelle? Same, very much the same, especially the, the critical part of it, where it does invite that urgency and the, um, the immediacy of focus and intention that um, we need to make sure that we're distilling down to what is the most critical and that the impact will have a ripple out effect in the future in, in ways that go well beyond what is the most important thing we think of right now. And we have to think in a longer timeline in order to to actually have that future to be able to enjoy.
1: Yeah. And that's part of what we wanted to invoke with that title, right? There is urgency. The time is now. We can't wait. And if we see the issues, yeah, the time to act is now, kind of like with climate change. like can't just sit around and be like, oh, that's unfortunate, right? So if you had to list or somebody said, okay, I get that it's critical, but like, help me understand what are the most pressing issues that I need to be thinking about? What would you say are the most pressing issues?
3: That's so difficult. That's so difficult, right? Um, especially when I think of our bodies, um, like all of us have them, <laughs> right? So that makes all of us a part of it um, all the time. and. Uh, Along with thinking of the, the the name of the podcast, I immediately was transported back to when I was pregnant with my child, and I had to check a box as a risk factor that my race was a risk factor. Yes. Yes, And instead of it being this amazing, exciting moment for me, I like all of that had to flood in and go, "Is it a risk factor because of the care I'm about to receive?" Is it a risk factor because they think there's something wrong with me and my body? And what what's about to happen, right? Like that feels very immediate and critical. Uh, so I immediately think of the beginning of life and then the way that life continues to grow, especially those first three years. Um, but, you know, it just continues on like the, it just builds on top of each other. So I'm not saying we ignore the end of life as well, right? But, but it, all of those things that involves building the body and having a trajectory into the future feels very immediate to me. And I think of another one of our community governance members who works in healthcare and infant um, outcomes, and her stories are just heartbreaking. Um, and so it's, it's very present and immediate, uh, top of mind for me.
2: Thank you so much, Michelle. Like that definitely resonates. I was going to go somewhere else at first, but I think it's really helpful to start with the personal experiences and to share our stories. So I, I also like I had a near death experience during this pandemic trying to give birth to my black child. And, you know, my degrees didn't protect me from that experience. The joint income that I have with my spouse didn't protect me from those experiences. You know, living in a safe middle class neighborhood didn't protect me from those experiences. So saying to people who want to know, like, what are some of the things that we need to think about? We have to stop denying that race and racism is a huge indicator of people's life outcomes and like ability to be able to thrive and to be safe and in regards to health and public health you know so many of the institutions that we navigate and systems that we rely on sort of create experiences in our bodies that then lead towards like how we experience health and healthcare and and safety within health systems as well and so when people say what should we think about it's like the answer is everything and from our standpoint as an organization something we that we tried to do is to help you know, provide some landscape analysis opportunities so that people can see the different ways in which our systems afford experiences to people based on race that then leads towards these outcomes that are unfortunately not a surprise. So Currently, um, we are studying the public safety system is crucial to our mission in history and the transforming nine one one research and reports that we've been putting out just shows and demonstrates the ways in which particularly black St. Louisans have their first experiences with the public safety system and their first experiences sometimes with emergency healthcare systems through calling nine one one and the failures that come along with that through a very stretched system where there aren't enough dispatchers, the first people who respond are police and are often not qualified to respond to many of these calls. And so that's just one example. We also have been studying the ways in which COVID has impacted our region, particularly Black folks who are more likely to be uh essential workers and were more likely to be people who had to work the whole time and had more opportunities for exposure to COVID, but were the last people to receive tests as well as vaccines, studying that as well. And then also our research on the education system and the ways in which the education system is continuing to offer. uh you know, a system to to families that just isn't effective for Black and brown people to really be able to navigate life in a way in which they can thrive. It just seems like we're still essentializing class and essentializing opportunity, uh, but not with race in mind and with race as an indicator of opportunity uh and yeah so for us it's not just about access anymore it's also about thinking about the ways in which our social social systems de facto and de jure how they're still informing how we navigate and how we live and so yeah it's like the systems in which we depend on are creating experiences in our body and then we're living that out and then we show up and we're in the hospital or we have to go to the doctor And then all of that just explodes in those opportunities. And Michelle and I have a partnership through the Racial Healing and Justice Fund. And so we're thinking about how to continue to evolve the future of the fund to speak to some of these issues and to broaden the priorities um, of the fund so that Black and Brown St. Louisans can continue to access and to have ownership um, of resources that are going back out to our communities.
1: Let's get there in a minute. But I just want to pause and and acknowledge, because as Michelle, you were talking, I'm like, we have three black mamas on this podcast. Yeah. And um, Michelle, I'm assuming when you mentioned the risk factor that you're identifying as black, because I also when I went to have my children, same experience I have a 13 and a 15 year old but I remember like it was yesterday she was like yeah you're gonna be more likely to gain weight you're gonna be at risk for preterm labor like all of these things that were essentialized about my pregnancy and like you said my my degrees did not save me my PhD did not save me and so I guess I just want to name like folks who are listening like if you have black (laughs) black women in your life right if you're if you're if you have a relationship with them and they trust you enough to tell you their birth story, I imagine they have some stories to tell because we we each could tell our birth story and and there would be a whole podcast in and of itself, right? And so when you talk about like starting at the beginning, it brought me back to that. And then Faber, as you were talking about our interface with with 911, Reform 911, like people might not think about that as part of our healthcare system, but it absolutely yes. is. And my first experience was when my grandmother was having a heart attack in North St. Louis in her house. My We called 911. My dad is a physician. And they came and were like aghast and obnoxious about the fact that my dad was a physician. Like we're not just we're like kind of disbelieving and like didn't really want to take full care of my grandmother who was having a heart attack on the floor. But like they but then they're like, well, this guy knows something. So we can't just act like this is just some North St. Louis call like we gotta do something, like it was so seeped with racism, and i I knew that, but like just then I made that connection of like, yeah, that was the first time I'd ever been involved in a nine one one call, yeah, and it was just layered, layered with racism, yeah, yeah, and classism, all that, right, like so yeah, it's complex, it's complex, and we can't just name one, two, three, these are the things. But I mean, tell me about the fund and tell me about what the two of you are up to together in terms of your partnership.
3: This is such incredible work. It's it's just so exciting because it completely transforms the way I think of philanthropy, the way the the, the systems uh, work in philanthropy. So from the basis of, from the very beginning, it's all based off of um, asking the community, what do you need? What is pressing Uh, what are the priorities first so it started with listening sessions it started with engaging um, different folks not just like you know the top players or the big names in the world like it was the community activists the folks that were grassroots the folks that were already doing organizing and healing work the folks that were already a part of the leadership movement inside the communities especially not just any community but the ones that are most impacted right so like those voices are centered and brought to the very forefront. And then we start going, okay, so from this, what are the priorities? What should we focus on? Excellent. Now let's move it into the fact, I should probably start with like funders so graciously. We're like, yeah, this completely different and um, never been done before process. We're in, All right? Because that, like, just the the leap of faith that they had to make in order to be willing to to partner with that is is so huge. Um, so um, I'm thinking of uh, Deaconess and Missouri Foundation for Health and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that really got that seed money started and then continued on from there. Um, but. From there, even the way the the priorities came from the community, and then the the people who are making decisions about where funds go are also from the community. So the folks who selected who would be on this community governance board that would be making those decisions those were community members as well, regular folks, not from ivory towers, from impacted communities, and then uh, folks like me who are like, I just want the world to be better, please. Or my family and families like you too, um, because we're actually neighbors, wouldn't that be great if we all thrived together? Uh, Folks like me were invited into the room to then look at applications of other St. Louis area people doing amazing things, having amazing solutions to things that directly um, impact the outcomes in our communities and say, yes, here's resources to pour into that dream. Here's resources to enrich, not just a transactional relationship and just like a specific outcome, but like building your capacity to continue to breathe life into our communities. It's absolutely incredible from the ground up.
2: And we started it during this pandemic, and it was all virtual at first. And so many just, I think, transformational lessons in um, what's possible when we keep trying. You know, in the Ferguson Commission, they talked about that culture of trying, and we really had to practice and exercise that during this process of launching this fund. And so, just to back up a little bit more, um, forward through Ferguson acts as project manager and the facilitator of the community participatory process and so it is not our responsibility as an organization to make the decisions about how the funding is reallocated it is the community governance board in which michelle is one of our uh founders of the community governance board who makes the decisions about funding the ongoing uh prioritization of the fund and so on and so this pilot launch version came out of a call to action that dates back from the Ferguson commission um, in 2014 when the governor declared a state of emergency um, in the St. Louis area as folks were uprising um, because of the killing of Mike Brown and also a killing of another black teenager that happened in St. Louis around the same time, the city was on fire in 2014. And so the community came together hundreds of hours said what they wanted, said what they thought was important, talked about what what they really thought that the root cause was. And we found out that it was racism and racial inequality. And so how can we prevent this from ever happening again? And we settled on one hundred and eighty nine actions in pieces of infrastructure, what we call racial equity infrastructure that would ensure that. We would live in a better region. Right. And one of those key calls to action was an endowed fund. So a lifelong fund of several million dollars that would be reallocated back into Black and Brown-led initiatives, organizations, projects, and centers uh, for wellness, right? And so through the work of FCF's founders, just crediting, I also want to acknowledge you too, Kira, as one of FCF's founders, I know you were the founding facilitator of the Racial Equity Roundtable, and I've since, you know, taken over that work, but just still highly, highly grateful for you and everything you've contributed to our organization, as well as just Nicole and Charlie and Rebecca Bennett, you know, many years of work leading up to us having the capacity as an organization to take the next step to start building out some of these key strategies and initiatives. And so, Through our relationships with Deaconess Foundation, uh, we were able to go to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and ask for the initial investment. And Robert Wood Johnson gave us that initial big pot of money. Missouri Foundation for Health followed suit. And then Deaconess has been our right-hand fiscal sponsor arm. And so through our creative partnership, just under 20 um, local funders have also opted in since. And we had uh, about a pot of just over uh, $1.5 million to reallocate back into the community. So far, we've given or reallocated um, five, over $500,000 back to 34 Black and Brown led organizations and initiatives. And now we're in our third cycle uh, of this fund and are reallocating $800,000 uh, back into the local community. We received Almost 300 applications asking for over 10 million dollars of racial equity infrastructure support. Right. And so, you know, we're making decisions about two hundred twelve completed applications. And, uh, you know, it looks like there'll be a lot of interviews and in really exciting conversations about who who gets that next uh, round of funding. And so now we're at the point of thinking about, OK, how does this go Larger than the pilot version and expands into the permanent racial equity fund. And how do we continue the community participatory process, which was crucial um, to starting this out to ensure that the process was community led, that the process was anti-racist? How do we continue that into the
1: future versions? Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that. So you talked about the culture of trying, but I want to talk about like what values guide your partnership. Yeah, um, a lot of organizations say they want to partner with community, but they don't necessarily do it in a way that feels good. It feels extractive. It doesn't feel collaborative. Their, the power dynamic is wonky, right? So the culture of trying. What else? Like, what are the values that make this work?
2: I think for me, as a facilitator um, in the process and working with the board, I think. Trying to set clear um opportunities for there to be ownership instead of just engagement, so and also recognizing that like we don't get it right all the time, and that there is a power dynamic between you know us as a project manager in between deaconess and and m f h and in between the board, noticing that those power dynamics are there, but that they should not be prohibitive to us having a transformational process. And saying that out loud, asking for feedback, asking for support, checking for um, understanding and satisfaction in our process, how we speak to each other, the resources that we set aside for everybody to feel empowered to be equitable owners. Um, in the process so that they know that their voices are our top priority and that we're also in agreement and accountable to ultimately um, the purpose um, of the fund, which is to be an anti-racist transformational resource that is accountable to the needs of impacted communities in our region. So starting with our values and then setting the structures and the resources according to our values and then acting as a guide uh, for folks to be able to lead themselves through that process. You know, my background is in education. And so I kind of, in some ways, like, I feel like I'm wearing my teacher hat sometimes in, in working, particularly on on this initiative in the fund. And as a teacher, as a guide, I see myself as a guide to learning. I don't see myself as pouring information into people, but as offering Uh, teaching and learning and dialogue and resource so that people can be empowered to really uncover that knowledge and skill and expertise for themselves.
3: And it's a really valuable process to kind of bring it back down to an individual level. What that looks like on the ground is we get to practice the world we want to live in together. So even the way we engage each other in meetings, the way we give each other grace, the way you know it's getting late the meeting is happening and somebody's child wanders on screen and we're like we know that child's name we say hello, you know, like, because that's real life. Like these are full people having full lives and experiences and there's space for that. It's less about the agenda. It's less about um, the hard deadline and, you know, leave all of those things out. No, bring your full self into this process because it is your lived experience that will add value to it. And it is really interesting to go through the process ourselves and experience the struggle and the engagement in ourselves about unlearning and relearning and becoming the people that we want to be in the world to mirror and model back out so that way we have those same relationships with community we have that same relationships with our partners you know and and fun partners it goes all the way from the core all the way out and it's kind of fun because one of our priorities is to heal the core and to Change the conditions. And that's exactly what it is. It has to start from the individual is welcome in the room and it goes all the way out to the microcosm.
1: So let me ask this is a lot of investment of time, Michelle, right? Like those people who have full lives, but they're like on this call and their kids wandering in and they really like might want to go read that bedtime story, but they're on this call. Do people get paid? Is there compensation? Do they just get this out of the kindness of their heart? It is so
3: great that you are asking this particular group, because most of the time the answer is no, right? And most of the time, it immediately excludes people from being able to participate. Uh, We are paid um, for our time. It is a, a definite nod to You are giving of your time, your expertise, your talents. Um, We're pulling away from, you know, where you could pour that into your own family, into your own life, into this greater um, gift. And it is an ongoing, um, like, what is it, like quarterly or or a couple? It's like broken up, I can't remember, three times or something like that a year. But even things like... When in a non-COVID world, there was a child care assistance available, there was transportation assistance available. Again, making sure that the voices are fully welcome at the table and that access is not one of those things that, um, you know, that really gets in the way. We try our absolute best. And yet it is a lot of work. Faber and I were on a meeting together last night until bedtime, you know, where the kids are wandering in, the bedtime story is creeping in and It's worth it, um, that we're actually kissing the exact little beings that we're doing this work for, uh, you know, and we're we're looking at it and seeing each other's lives right there on the screen. And it actually builds even more commitment to showing up more fully into the work.
1: And what you're talking about is relationship, right? And I, I want people to hear that because it's about building relationship, authentic relationship, but that doesn't mean that it's extractive. There's also compensation, and you're respecting people's expertise, their time, their energy, um, and that I think that's I think that's worth noting. So I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that in terms of like by the values.
3: And it's it's also uh, very helpful. The very first cycle um, had a folks from who were like college students, people who were wondering why the heck they were even in the room that they had no background in any of these things. And then their lived experience shows up and just roars to life. And it's like glorious and everything we absolutely needed. So that's also, I think, healing and transformative to be able to have these different people from very different walks of life. There isn't a certain pedigree required to be in the room. We just need your experience and willingness to be in the room and we will get there together um, so we're we're trying, you know. Of course, it's never a perfect system, right? It's always continuing to be um, iterative and, and evolving. Um, and yet, we're we continue to model it and practice a more equitable and accessible um, community. So that way, our actual neighbors can be actually a part of the conversation.
1: And I think that speaks to um, patience, patience in the process, tr- trusting that. It it can't be microwaved, just trusting that it'll come. And then this piece around like honoring people's expertise in their lived experience in these systems and structures, even if they don't see it or know it. And that to me is powerful because I think as academics or as experts or subject matter experts, like we think we know what needs to happen And we often don't slow down to mine the wisdom from people who are living in the systems that we're trying to shift, right? So we talk about access, but like, I don't know what it is fully like to not have access to struggle in all the ways to get access. I know some ways, but I don't know all the ways and so I need to, I need to have a seat and listen, but sometimes people don't even realize what the gifts that they have to offer. Like you said, they might be like, why am I here? But then a proposal comes across the desk and they're like, wait a minute, but they're missing all these things. And they only know that because of their lived experience, but that is like gold. And so for folks to realize that community at the table doesn't just mean you're like, literally letting community pull up a seat at the table, but that you're you're slowing down to listen. And I don't mean slowing down in like a remedial way. I mean like in a, in an authentic, genuine, listening, connecting sort of way. It's re- it's really beautiful to hear about what's going on. Because I remember when it was nascent. And so to hear it fully formed and, and thinking about scaling up, it's, it's beautiful. What's that, Fabra? No, I was just saying thank you. Oh i mean i didn't i didn't do nothing with this i mean early on yeah okay so yes i will take that (laughs) thank you exactly thank Uh
3: you one of the things that i did not fully appreciate until i became more engaged in this was the understanding of what it takes to build capacity so when we say when she says thank you like i am only barely starting to understand the, the years and hours and hours of work that gets to the possibility of starting something. Right? And then the, the arc of growth that roots required to get to the next scaling moment, it really does take the, the full groundswell. And it's usually led by that first point of action, that first point of passion. And then it's amazing what can happen from that. So for real, thanks
1: it's a good reminder of just like how you get to pass the baton. Right. Cause there are times where I'm like, yeah. Oh, I need to be more engaged. I need to be more involved. And it's like, well, there was a time where I was super like, oh, I was on all the calls till all the night all, hours in the night and doing all the things and, yeah. and you know, trying to, trying to really integrate this language into the region and all, just all of that. And so you're right. That's why, that's why I shut my mouth. And I said, let me take that and, know that there's a season for this work and yep. um it's so it's it's really beautiful to see the baton passed and to see you building on it
3: yeah and it's 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 starting to be modeled outward as well like in the you know in the era that we've we've seen of um bigger active uh, activity and activist work what's also starting to happen is people are starting to speak of passing the baton of how to make the work sustainable of how to step in and then step back and like take the time you need. One of our, our core priorities is around supporting the healers and the organizers. And even um, a friend of mine uh, was specifically part of a black healer collective where you know they're doing like you know direct action, direct things to really wrap around support, to process things. And then I got to see her go, and before I am burnt out, I am going to step back because there is capacity for someone else to step in. That's what I'm talking about. That is a community that can continue. That is actually sustainable.
1: And that's the hope. Yeah, I literally was uh, just coordinating because we're doing a, BH, a Black Eagles Collective event tomorrow with SLPS teachers, well, counselors and social workers. And it's like, I haven't been able to be involved all year because life and travel and right. And, um, you know, I was like, I can do this. Like, actually I'm free. Let me, let me do this. And, and part of why I stepped in is for that exact reason. I know other people have been stepping up when they can all year. Rebecca can't be there. Bertini can't be there. Let me be there. Let me step up so that they know other people will step up because when other people don't, it's like, well, I mean, I know I can't keep this going on, so we got to stop. Right. But when we step up for each other in community, it's like, okay, yeah, Right. Like, so it's great to hear the round tables continuing. Like I can't continue to do that, but you can like, and it's a way in which we can come together and not get caught up in ego and needing credit. And it's like the work needs to happen. And there's so much work for everyone, like all hands on deck. Cause there's work to be done.
2: Yeah. Work and alignment too. I think there's a thing about alignment that we're also still i think learning as an organization in general but also particularly on um the point about how we continue to be authentically who we are as an organization that's tied to a movement in the history and like legacy of a movement but also still growing um into having our own unique identity um and purpose you know as a as a catalyst, as a change maker, and then also have now developed some tools and resources and replicable models for people in other places to try. It's many, many things to consider. And so how are our other projects and initiatives also aligning to each other as we're like aligning to the community and being responsive to the needs? How are we also like being cohesive and strategic internally too? And so One of the things that I uh, decided to do with my colleague, Sarah, who's the other facilitator for our racial equity capacity building offerings, is that we decided to also go on a journey uh, towards more meaningfully engaging the philanthropy landscape. And so we've set a round table that is for philanthropic leaders. So that as we're doing the Racial Healing and Justice Fund work and building out the plan for the future of the Racial Equity Fund, that we're also establishing meaningful partnership, trust building, action planning, and strategy with organizations in philanthropy who want to try to be different and to create new ways of being in philanthropy so that we have a continued network of accountable partnership going forward.
1: What do funders
2: need to do differently? So many things, but I think this idea about figuring out what community participatory processes really look like uh, within their organizations. I also think that they need to reckon with their history and legacies and ties to systemic racism and the ways in which like, their system and the ways in which their organizations may have a history or past with racism, dealing with that, recognizing that. I think they also should think about uh, the the hierarchy of decision-making too, as well. Think about their staffing model. Some of these are organizational development pieces, but also some of them are, I think, really Um, interrogating the traditional patterns of philanthropy and the ways in which it it keeps people of color out uh, in particular and the ways in which it keeps, I think, um, really strong professional leaders with potential away from the philanthropy field. I think that more people with potential would be interested in the system of philanthropy and being professionals in the systems of philanthropy. But it's just that some of the traditional patterns just feel so restrictive and that they are restrictive and in, in how people have to jump through hoops to gain resources. that it's just like it, it pushes people out. And it's, um, I think, against the the purpose of philanthropy. But people just haven't really figured out how to stop doing some of those
3: traditional doings if that makes sense and some of it is just why is it so complicated why is why is the jargon so self-reflective rather than using the language of the people you're trying to interact with like what's up with that um for for the for the users uh, for the listeners um audio only at home uh, there was lots of snapping and like nodding by the way throughout all of this i need you to like get a picture of what that looks like that's um full support in that, there are some really great people that are interested in challenging some of those assumptions that have been around for so long, they don't even realize their assumptions. So when you're using um, really heavily fiscal jargon to someone who is not from that space, they're out before they even got started. Um, when I hear um, one of our community governance board members mention that she's teacher poor, right? Like, am I going to encourage my child to go into teaching? Am I going to encourage my child to go into philanthropy? Um, thus, removing one more voice that actually needs to be at that table from that process. So some of it is um, is really like amorphous and hard to pin down. And others is like, why are we using words like amorphous and you're 25% words? I know you're smart. Can you please just back it up a little bit and like just say or give me definitions? Make this easy. You can tell, people can tell you their story about the work that they want to do in many different ways that does not include a 20-point essay and, you know, like 10 years of receipts, et cetera, et cetera. Like if you want new ways of being, you'll need to include new ways of expression as well. And that's that's pretty easy in the world that yeah. we live in. Like, come on, if you got a, a phone, you can like, you know, view a video on YouTube or just a direct attachment. Like this is all Actionable, Why isn't that a part of the the scenery that we're we're navigating in with philanthropy?
2: Yeah, it's one of the um it has been said that the definition of philanthropy is that it is the love of humankind. And for me, one of the things that love is evident of is trust. And so I think movements towards trust-based philanthropy is very important. So to Michelle's point, considering alternative systems in which potential grantees can tell their story, talk about what they're doing, talk about why it's important for them to gain resources that are not harmful to them and are not hoops that they have to jump through and that are highly accessible uh, for them to be able to gain access. And then also in regards to some of the traditional patterns of philanthropy, a traditional pattern of philanthropy that we have to stop is this notion that people somehow have to be funded first or vetted first in order to get funding because that is not logical and it doesn't make sense. So one of the key intentions of this fund is to be an entry point for new organizations, initiatives and projects that have never been funded to, before to, to just get a first shot and an opportunity and I think more established foundations and funds need to follow suit because people don't get opportunities if they never get opportunities.
1: Yeah, that's it's just it's so self-serving and it's this it's, it becomes insular. Well, who's um, funding you?
2: And it's like, no one, because I just started six months ago. And I'm, OK, well, let us know when you
1: get a funder and then we can talk again. Right. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. And I was thinking when you're talking about how many applications you've received, I'm like, that's so exciting, because what I find is that oftentimes when I write a grant project up, of course, I want the money. But sometimes I'm like. Wait, there's some of this I could do without this money. And so like you get people to working together and thinking together, and of course you want folks to get support, but like it also can can breed so many ideas and collaborations and connections. So I'm, glad, my- you said,
3: I'm glad you said collaborations. Um I was thinking of the same person who is a teacher um, as part of our group, where uh, one of the things that uh, she really is excited about and has encouraged the board to think about is building partnerships rather than it being this competitive landscape that if this person gets funded, that's less for us. No, if this person is doing similar work over here, they probably have experiences and wisdom that you can you know, get value from. So please do partner up, please do share resources. And it's really neat to, to watch in some of the applications that we're reviewing right now people talking about each other, and it's not the normal players in time. It's not the same names. It's new things emerging, and they're already becoming in partnership with each other. That's that's a true capacity build for me. That's the stuff that even if they don't get a certain dollar amount, they're already going to be better for it just by gaining those partnerships and having you know, thought it through, gotten the inspiration, really had to, to, to distill down what is their mission, what is their goals, what's their values. It's great all around. So I, I love um, the idea that interacting with the Racially Injustice Fund, people are better for it just by having engaged with it at all, whether they get a dollar a month. I'd like to give them dollars too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering if we could get granular, or I don't know if this will take us there, but I'm thinking about like within the healthcare system and addressing structural racism and thinking about how we create and vision for this anti racist system. What do we need in terms of, I want to think about policy change or structural change or systems change? Because and this kind of connects to what I asked at the top of our conversation around what's most pressing, but I'm thinking about, are there examples of projects that have come through the fund? Are there examples of dream projects that you would like to do that need to happen? And what are the recommendations? If you had a, an organization that had the capacity, the unlimited funds, whatever resources to do the change that needs to happen, what would you say needs to be the policy change, the structural change, the systems change?
3: I'm thinking,
2: yeah. Do, do, do. Yes, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many things. I think to our original example, just kind of the the jump off for the conversation as we were talking about maternal and infant health and um, you know health outcomes for pregnant people, particularly Black folks who are are pregnant and trying to give birth to children. We know that doula programs and midwifery programs work. Black women and Black people who give birth are more likely to live and to thrive when they have the support of doulas and when they have the support of midwives. I think some coalition building to resource and provide educational opportunities for Black and Brown folks to become doulas and midwives are an essential, like, systemic move. Um, I also think that traditional hospitals need to reevaluate their policies and the ways in which they are keeping black women and, and brown people and birthing people of color out of the hospital systems. One perfect example is at Mercy Hospital here, their birthing center has a rule about BMI. So if you are 25 pounds overweight, you may not give birth in their birthing center. And you know me, that the BMI what? index is racially biased, and that is still a rule that they have. I was told that I cannot give birth in Mercy Hospital's birthing center because I am over 30 pounds overweight. At the time, I was not sick. I was not having any complications. And that is a rule that is keeping black and brown people out of opportunities for high quality health care. So every hospital system needs to do a landscape analysis. They need to do analysis of their policies. They need to Hire people of color that have a racial equity lens and they need to work harder to listen uh, to organizations that are working
1: on issues of public health and education on purpose. People need to understand that. I mean, that is that is so that is embedded. That is like entangled. That's an entanglement of racism because you think about environment and there's just so many pieces to that stress uh like all the ways that racism impacts the body and then you're going to penalize me because i'm 25 like and i I, mm, mm. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that is that a well known i don't know
2: if it's well known or not but it is a policy that i am aware of It is a policy that kept me out of a high quality healthcare experience. And then my whole pregnancy spiraled after that experience, I was four weeks late getting healthcare during my pregnancy because mercy hospital pushed me out.
1: And so like, I'm just,
2: that's a whole nother podcast, right? So that's just one example of many. I'm sure that the other hospital birthing centers have similar rules. So there are criteria that you have to meet to be able to give birth in the birthing center to be able to work with a midwife uh, and a nurse at their hospital. So they said, yeah, you can give birth at the regular hospital, like when it's your time to give birth or if you want to schedule a C-section, your uh, OBGYN will schedule the C-section. You would be scheduled a C-section was what they told me up front if I, you know, do you see what I'm saying? So it's like, based on the criteria that I would meet, based on my body, I could not experience something that would be a safe and high quality experience. So it says a lot about what, what they're <laughs> able to provide uh, and who they prioritize uh, to the community. It, you know, has also been said that they were investigating a birthing center in ferguson but what we know is that there's already a black-led birthing center in ferguson and like not having any conversations with them ahead of time is concerning and so just also saying to hospital systems please identify independent health centers that are doing hard work in black and brown communities and try to cultivate a meaningful partnership with them in which they are resource and amplify to be the teachers and are not opportunistically, you know, just worked with just to look good so that you can take over, but that's so the community benefits from you all having a joint partnership. Right. Ooh. There's so many things. That's just one example of several, several policies and several systems.
3: Michelle, did you want to add one? I mean, it it just continues on with the same the same idea. The fact that uh, I had to ask multiple times and remind everyone that I was in fact breastfeeding um, because of the assumptions of not um, the assumption of bottle. The some you know, my baby leaves the room and comes back with a pacifier. Where I'm like, ah, would you have done that to a white breastfeeding mom? Because like this child's less than a day old, and we've latched like two or th- maybe twice, and now there's a pacifier. What? what so, in breastfeeding community, you would never introduce a pacifier and right, like stuff like that. So, those types of things were uh, I wasn't even consulted. I remember um, my father in the last couple of days of his life. You know, like he's a, a very dark skinned man, and it took multiple um, ongoing in- interactions with staff to get someone to roll him closer to natural light and put light on his skin to see if he was reacting and was having an allergic reaction to something because no one would even think about it because they're not used to looking at that color skin. And so it was just another one of those clear moments that um, we forget that the way medical profession is built is based off of inputting information. But what is that information that is being inputted? Um, What are the lenses and biases that comes up with that is every example they've seen on fair skin. Like, you know, does that go down to the, you know, more melatonin Um, and just seeing what that, that looks like. So some of it is like active. um, I, I rarely saw very direct active racist and um prejudice actions directly towards me. It was actually a lot of systemic assumptions of what things look like, what are the known criteria, what is normal, what are the levels that are supposed to be be done. Um, and in the ones that were more woke and like more informed, it actually almost got worse because they assumed, well, I've seen black mothers and they don't breastfeed. You know, I've seen this group of people and they don't this or they do that thus i will did you help me <laughs> right? um and then that changes because what we're trying to do is add information to people who have never lived that experience whereas if the people in the room are walking around in the body that has that direct experience you don't have to teach as much you don't have to like break those assumptions as much, They a greater, wider understanding is already in the room. Uh, so that's also part of the support of healers and, you know, building those pipelines of getting more black and brown folks in the rooms, not just in service, but also in positions of authority and decision-making.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't have to teach as much, but as you mentioned, these systemic assumptions and these systems and structures like this rule that Faber was talking about even if the practitioner had been a black woman, right, they're still bound by these rules in this space. And so I I really do think it's at both and of people. Yes, representation is so important. And we also need to think about policies and systems and structures. And so I appreciate you all giving us those nuggets to think about in terms of those 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 suggestions and just sharing all of your wisdom in terms of your work at the fund with the fund and um, what you've learned, how you work together. And I hope listeners, I hope you've, I hope you have taken something from this conversation in terms of thinking about what is critical for our future to create an anti-racist healthcare system and to dismantle structural racism. So, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you for listening to the Critical Futures podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org/podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.